You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour, and we are back discussing Dorothy L. Sayers. Whose body? Whose body? All the way to the end of that particular novel. Full spoilers are engaged. Herds has been in the hot seat. And uh, Herds, I think, mm. having gone to the end of this novel, I have enjoyed myself. Yeah. I think that there's enough weird stuff going on that even if I definitely skimmed over some of the monologues and some of the, the back and forth that happens in this text, <laughs> just for this, partly for the sake of time, partly to just get to the next scene, yeah. there's enough strange things happening couple of things I wanted to highlight out the gate. One, we actually get a little showdown scene between the detective and the criminal. We have a little like, oh, so good. I know that you know that you know that I know. Sir, would you like to have this hypodermic needle injected in your arm? He's like, no, thanks. Because he knows that that needle would have spelled his doom. Yeah. And the other thing that I really like about this novel is that because we are dealing with the crazy doctor, we get some really disgusting bodies. Oh, uh, there's a um, great line. There's a great line where they walk in and he's like, oh, yeah, that's Sir so Wilmington on the table. Mm. He holds the uh, the finance of five countries but couldn't hold his nerves. Yeah. And now Sir Julian Freak holds the fate of five countries in his hands. It's true. The true power of doctors is finally revealed. That's why we pay them so much. <laughs> I particularly enjoy the scene where we opened the grave of Sir Reuben Levy. Yeah. And apparently his face has been taken apart. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. Like, a murder mystery classic. It's great. It's great. I just love the way that it's described. It's like, I began to take apart his face. Yeah, there's also this like really weird atmosphere to the beginning of that scene as well, where there's like, they're coughing and there's a miasma in the air as they're going to dig it up. I really enjoyed that. It's nice and spooky, which I, I do enjoy as a fan of the old horror tropes. Yeah, I, I think the strange thing to me is that this novel is very competent, but doesn't do anything that makes it like, noteworthy mm. to me it's it's very whimsical it's got a lot of fun bits and pieces to it the atmosphere that dorothy l sayers constructs is really impressive at some points uh, beyond all of that it is a very simple story with some you know some, some quirks the wrap up that make me like it a lot like not to get too far into the mystery just yet but like the wrap-up that we have is a little bit bizarre we have our classic confession mm. from the criminal but the the detective, well, our characters, our surviving characters, like they hardly get to say anything about it. We kind of just yeah. read the letter and then the novel ends. There's a, there's this note by Lord Peter saying, you know, all those brains and he couldn't resist writing a confession. How strange. It's almost like we're in a murder mystery novel or something. Like I know. It, it's a very strange ending. Which, which rings especially hollow when there was a character just a yes. short while ago complaining about all Parker. of the things that murder mysteries don't get right. Yeah, it is bizarre that we've gone through this, this journey of kind of critiquing murder mystery, but then ending it as a typical murder mystery would have ended. I think it's also disappointing because of how much character there is in unassuming moments otherwise mm. like that scene that we mentioned with the like flashbacks to the war with bunter last week and there's the fantastic moment in this stretch of chapters in fact even in the confession letter is a good example frake basically explains how you know he's set aside a, a letter to be published after his death but he yes. is giving that account over to whimsy so that he can publish it but he wants him to publish it to the scientific community to well, pay respects <laughs> to his profession uh, he's so up himself yeah i think i think that it just doesn't feel like a satisfying sort of end to the to the action of the novel 
Although I do like, as you say, there's, there is this scientific letter that he once published, all of his research, where he says, I would like my brain to be dissected because I'm sure that many people will learn a lot from the way that my brain works and how clever I am and how much chess I played. I know he's <laughs> yeah. not dead, but po- it is basically posthumously. Like, we don't see this character again. Yep. The arrest happens off screen. So it is narratively posthumous. Narratively posthumous. I like that phrase. He doesn't even get to finish his letter, which I think is is quite fun, actually. One thing I was curious to ask you about, Herds, was Lord Whimsy and Parker, to me, the longer the novel went on, felt less and less like individuals and more like the Jekyll and Hyde of Whimsy's character. I'm interested to see, like, later on in the series, how those two flesh out and become maybe more unique, because in this novel, towards the end, it kind of felt like we were pushing and pulling between two detectives that really only needed to be one. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think that these two characters, they exist to to comment on the detective fiction genre, so we could talk about these two mm. approaches, even though, as you say, you could have very much mechanically had one detective. I was also a little disappointed we didn't get to see as much of Bunter to close out this novel, because no. he's been a, a very quiet highlight of the novel. I'll let you know, I've, I've got my ebook version here, and I've just done a search for the word Bunter. Two. Two moments where his name is mentioned for the entire latter third of the novel. He really does kind of disappear uh, so that his lordship can take the stage. That said, I I did very much enjoy the conversation between uh, between Whimsy and uh, I think it was a medical student, I want to say, where he, he says um, that the problem with questions and tests and things is that you don't ask the correct questions to kind of provoke people to give you in the information that you need. They kind of go back and forth on, you know, well, in detective fiction, characters can always remember exactly where they were at a given time to establish alibis and give you all the information you need. And it's all very convenient. But then we go through this exercise where this character who who explicitly says, you know, I couldn't remember all of these details, but Whimsy kind of leads this character through a, a mental journey to remember, you know, what was the pages, what were the pages in your book and what were the little notes that you remember? And that's how he kind of produces the the final clue that he needs to put everything together. I really enjoyed that scene. I thought that was a genuine moment of like cleverness. Oh yeah. I, I think that is probably the highlight of this stretch of chapters to me. I think the thing that I enjoyed, I was talking last week about how like there are some contradictions that the book brings to light and doesn't kind of drag through to their natural conclusion. And I felt that was another good example of that being done, what felt like to me on purpose, the idea that if you go through and do the exercise and force yourself to remember, you can actually like remember a lot more things than you'd think, but that inherently leaves out like, well, what if your memory is wrong? (laughs) For sure. And we get to see that like very opinionated insight on the way that murder mystery works, which, you know, I enjoyed the confidence with which Dorothy L. Sayers just kind of had a character come out and say something that is so easily disagreeable. Debunkable, you know? potentially. Yeah, People like- people have opinions, and I, I like that she's not necessarily defending her characters from having opinions. Sure. Well, I think that it's, uh, as you say, it is confident that this sort of thinking is obviously baked into the entire novel, Obviously, Whimsy, he, in, in his thinking, you know, these are all the ways in which a regular person can recall events and details that you would think are impossible. We compare this kind of uplifting message of, you know, this is the power of the mind if you just know how to work with it to the way that Frake approaches psychology as a, as a you know, a chess yeah. game to be won, where if you can just take away objectivity and you have all the time in the world and no accidents occur, then you can do everything anything you put your mind to but but only only he can do it 
is Frank's kind of mindset. He thinks that he is superior to everyone else. Whereas Whimsy kind of takes his own kind of amateur psychology look at the world and says, well, let's see what a regular person can do with a, just a little bit of leverage. Yeah. And I think that having those two, not necessarily opposite viewpoints, but kind of competing viewpoints, I think really does raise my opinion of the novel. Even if I think that the narrative is subpar, <laughs> you know? I, I think that's, I think that is my main takeaway from this book is that, this book has so many things that are subpar about it, but I have really valued reading it because of like how strongly opinionated it was and the insights that it attempts to make on the nature of the genre. There's a lot here to think about, even though the book itself I don't think is noteworthy in any other aspect. Yeah. You know, the murder mystery, which we'll get into at the back of the show, was kind of comically easy. It's ridiculous. Like, to the point where some characters are only involved in the novel by pure coincidence. It reeks of first novel syndrome, where there are lots of big <laughs> ideas, lots of ambitious ideas, but it's not quite quite there yet. Yeah, okay. The, w- the way that you phrase that on the back half there, I can yeah, agree let's... with. I think there are a lot of people's first novels who feel very different to this, but in that aspect, I completely agree. Yeah, yeah no. I don't want to I don't want to claim that one of the four queens of crime is is any old amateur, you know, writer or or whatever. <laughs> but I think that there is a certain level of, you know, ambitious writing that comes with writing or well, you know, debuting, publishing your first novel. And I think it is the strongest part of of this book, um, which is really cool, actually. I really enjoy that. Let us uh, let us wrap this part of the discussion then, Herds, and we can go and talk about the mystery in full depth so, after this. Let's dive on in. You're on Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3, and we'll be back with more in just a second. Flex here with you. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour on 2SER 107.3. Coming up this October, the crime fiction world is set to welcome Death on the Pier, a debut novel from Jamie West, who joins us on the show today ahead of that release. Jamie, welcome to Death of the Reader. It's so good to have you. I'm so excited to be here, yeah. So you started writing this book during a lockdown amidst a production of Dear Evan Hansen, And I'm curious about the act of theatrical necromancy you committed in bringing back Brighton's Palace Pier Theatre, which closed in 1973, if I'm correct? Yes, I think so. Something around there. What was the particular draw of you resurrecting this over any of the other many lost theatres of the world? Well, it's kind of of weird because the theatre idea came into it quite late on, actually. This is an idea, I've been meaning to write a murder mystery book for, I don't know, five or six years, and the pier part of it came way earlier I was like oh that's a really great idea you know there's that kind of closed circle mystery so there's only one way on or off appear so if that's blocked you know that kind of creates a great closed circle mystery I've already read five or six books this year that are set on isolated islands or luxury retreats so it's kind of I was looking for something (laughs) a little bit different a little bit different but while I was looking into peers and another one of my hobbies, which is looking into lost theatres, um, I discovered there was this lost pier, this lost theatre, sorry, on the end of the Palace Pier in Brighton, which is no longer there. And that suddenly, everything kind of dropped into place after that. So I was like, oh, well, I like the theatre. I like murder mysteries. Let's write a murder mystery set in a theatre. And then the idea of having a playwright involved and maybe his best friend um, happens to be um, a police detective. So that's where that 
that's how it kind of came on. So yeah, so only during lockdown was it like, oh, let's make this, let's make this set in a theatre. So yeah, it came quite late on in the process, bizarrely. Yeah, it's so interesting because like, as you, as you say, the identity of the theatre is like so intrinsic to this uh and you've worked through a vast array of shows on london's west end which gives you like so much history and background to all of the theaters there why does the identity of a theater matter when at face value so many people are just there for what's on the stage and little else it's yeah it's weird because you can't or i can't work in theaters without being fascinated by the history of them it's like back in the day theaters had their own identity whereas nowadays shows just go into them and kind of they kind of fit a bit better but back in the days of kind of actor managers that were running theaters in the west end they had a certain type of play you go to a certain type of theater to see a certain type of play and they would have you know personalities in that way and the brighton palace pier i only found out a lot of the information once i started writing the book so i was like this is a great location but then i started finding out more about it and it had this incredible glass ceiling which i don't think I don't know any theatres that have a glass ceiling, which seems insane for a theatre in the middle of the sea. Um, doesn't feel very safe to me, but all right. <laughs> but yeah, there are loads more theatres that are lost in the UK. And I'm looking into all of them and I want to resurrect a lot more of them as well. So, I mean, I think we'll see how far we can push it with, you know, every time Bertie's involved, there's a murder in one of his plays. No one stages plays anymore. So I think I might have to think some, uh, <laughs> think some new ways around that. But um, yeah, there's so many more I want to do. And the next book, I'm actually looking into the Gaiety Theatre, which was a theatre on the Strand. And that's that's lost now as well. Yeah, I guess the next thing that I wanted to talk about is the characters in this novel, who are wonderful, by the way. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed the way that Hugh and Bertie's relationship played with like both this modern reinterpretation of classic detectives and maybe they were queer but also grappled with this like lifelong professional platonicism to their dynamic i thought that was like really cool like i said as soon as the theater aspect of it came and i was like oh it'd be nice to have you know a player someone who's actually involved in um the theater a bit more intimately knows how it works a bit and is kind of there like sometimes as a bit as an interpreter, you know, we've got our own language, we've got our own attitudes, we've got our own customs. And it's like, he's kind of there as a bit of a conduit. But I was also keen to kind of avoid that kind of PC plod kind of thing where it's the amateur detective that's super clever and the policeman that's really stupid. <laughs> I sort of wanted them both to be kind of investigating as equals. And also the fact that this is the first time they've met up since school. I was like, how you know how have people changed over that time um and i was really intrigued to see how that would work how they remembered the past whether that was the same for both of them or different i'm sort of excited to live through um a few more cases with them and see how that relationship um changes and how it gets affected yeah the other thing you're kind of looking for as a author is an excuse to get your characters together you know the amount of times miss marple or poirot are kind of shoehorned into a situation where you're like oh would they really <laughs> oh it's just oh they just happened to be walking past and there was another murder oh i know i mean the novel we're talking about this week alongside this interview is dorothy l says whose body and lord peter whimsy straight up gets a phone call from his mother saying one of my friend's friends has a body in their bath and it's like really dorothy that was the best you could do <laughs> but it's, it's such a tough thing isn't it but i think yeah. um in this i've kind of flipped it in this one i think in the future we're kind of going to see the excuse for them to get together is 
murder. That's not going to be a very, you know, that's not a very stable yeah. base to build any kind of relationship on. I feel like they need an excuse to get together as opposed to just being, oh, pop over. So, um, yeah, I think that's it's kind of fun to play with. Yeah, I, I suppose the other thing, and also as a bit of a teaser for a spoiler discussion we're going to have down the line, is I thought you did such a unusually good job having a tiny cast of characters involved in this crime because so often when I open a book with a tiny cast of characters it's like well there's only so many people it could be of and four of them are the detective's mother like <laughs> how's that how's that gonna work out in the end but you did such a, a an excellent job like crafting this overlapping myriad of circumstances in in the classic way of murder mystery Doing that for the first time, how intimidating was it going in and how well do you feel you did on the way out? Um, gosh, that, what a good question. I'm very bad. I have a very bad short-term memory. So if I'm reading a murder mystery book <laughs> with lots of characters, I can't. Like my husband loves keeping track of things. He won't have a notebook out, but not far off. He like really keeps track of everything. But I forget what I've read in the last chapter almost instantly. So I'm much more immersed perhaps in the mystery and just like, I just go with it. But yeah, I, um, I didn't want to have a crazy, crazy cast of characters just cause it's a lot, you know, it's a lot of characters to invent. And actually it allows me in the chapters, we get to spend a decent amount of time just sort of knowing a bit about these people. And luckily, you know, working in the theatre for all these years, no no one person's based on any person, of course, but there's so many stories I've heard over the years, snippets of, you know, great dialogue. Actors say ridiculous things sometimes without realising it. <laughs> um, great little snippets of dialogue. And you hear it all behind the scenes. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, it was really nice to kind of incorporate all of those things into they're sort of kind of tropey characters in a way but i hope that i've been able to bring them to life in you know they don't feel like cardboard cutouts hopefully they feel like rounded characters that was always my aim with them basically yeah and i, I mean and i think it fits so well into the murder mystery tradition because like you know naya marsh and agatha christie were such enormous contributors to the theater scene in their day that it feels at home having the theater archetypes in a murder mystery book yeah, exactly. and I think you get a bit of it, you know, with theatrical types, they're not quite, they're just on a slightly elevated kind of world that's a little bit different to everyone else. I think that's why, you know, Agatha Christie loves having actors in her books um, because they get to do a bit more work. They get to go that extra mile and go, oh, that doesn't, that's not something a normal person would do, but you kind of get away with a bit more of perhaps an outlandish scheme because they've got that kind of alternative creative thinking thing going on so yeah i think you get a bit more having theatrical people allows you to be a bit more theatrical in the you know in the writing of it basically mm, mm, i think so i suppose we should wrap this part of the discussion here if you're listening during our coverage of whose body make sure you're subscribed to the podcast because there's a full version of this chat with some spoilers taped onto the end coming in october but uh jamie for this part thank you so much for joining us here on death of the reader it's been a pleasure having you Fantastic. Yeah, I've been really excited to come on and talk about my book. We are talking Dorothy L. Sayers, Whose Body? And that was just Jamie West talking about his debut, Death on the Pier, which comes out this October. And we'll, of course, have links up on the podcast for that. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. Stick around.
You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with the final deliberation bum, bum, bum. on Whose Body? Whose Body? By Dorothy L. Sayers. Well, I suppose not the final deliberation, Herds. We do still have review season, as we've alluded to a couple of times mm. uh, through this novel, because it is a novel that has gotten me thinking about review season a lot, because... Mm. I've enjoyed this a bunch, but it's it's certainly feeling like a towards the bottom of the list novel well, for me. It's it's difficult to recommend because one of our key components is was it a good mystery? Yes. Um, was it easy to read? Like <laughs> both of those points are kind of meanders on a bit. So we'll that, see. That said, one of the one of the other criteria, which is further down the list, is you know what kind of point does it make for itself? Sure. And I think this book has a lot to say for itself, which uh, maybe it's saving grace when we get there. We'll see. It, I don't think it'll be at the very bottom of the list. I'm sure there will be worse. Well, well, you know, less less. I mean, <laughs> reader friendly novels. Let's say I <laughs> wouldn't be surprised. If it was at the bottom of the list. Oh, no. But if it is at the bottom of the list, I think it's the the highest floor we've had so far. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's true. I don't think I don't think this is a truly terrible book, thankfully. Now, we, we are in the mystery section of, of the show, Flex, and typically that involves handing out points. I would love to know- It does. Your process. I don't know if you want to just give me the points, but like, I, I you know, I need to know- how did you deliberate? Because my theory was a bit of a mess last week. Yeah. And the solution's a bit of a mess this week. And I don't even know what you put points on at the end of the day. I'm I'm worried. Yeah, I, I think the main thing that I wanted to hear from you, Herds, in terms of points and deliberation was trying to excise clues that were really noise in the novel. Because uh, there is a lot of that. There yes. is a lot of just noise in the mystery that you both as a reader can kind of tune out because it's obviously noise, but also makes it difficult to kind of make something cohesive because you it's get to it and you go, well, through. it's obviously Freak. He obviously did this. What else do I need to say? Hmm. And I really wanted you to kind of pick out what more there was to say about this book. And I think... Across the board, you did a pretty solid job. I'm really? going. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to only give you two points. That's fine. But I, I think those are two points that I award earnestly and sincerely because you did you did as good of a job as I think you could. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a tough challenge, the one that I set for you here. I was I was leaning on three points because I did like the kind of attempt you made at the other crime and the whole bit with the bar. Well, let, let me put it this way. I didn't understand what was going with Levy at all. I didn't entirely, like, bes- like, obviously it was the whole, you know, I'm a crazy criminal and I want to prove that I can do a crime thing. But yeah, there was definitely more going on with the oils and the experimentation, which I was kind of thinking about, but wasn't sure how to work into things. Yeah. Like you, you get to the end of the book and in pr- a practical sense, they are clues for the mystery. Like, you, you can lend them into a theory, but functionally, they are set dressing for what Freak was going to do anyway. I think that's probably the largest piece to me where you kind of lost the the two points, but I also would have been shocked if you had kind of managed to entirely piece that together what? because the oils... <laughs> yeah, sorry. Because, because the oils and all of that, you can guess that they're involved and you can guess that they're the motivation, but the specifics are so shrouded in the noise, as I keep saying. I mean, it's like all those questions you asked me last week about, you know, how did... How did Freak get into their house and how did they sneak mm-hmm. around and who let them in and da, da, da. like all the mechanical questions of the crime. I didn't like it, it's not that there weren't any clues at all. Like <laughs> it gets close. I, I 
I, I had read all the bits about like the bumps on the roofs and I figured, well, Frank's probably using the roof somehow, but like, yeah. I couldn't tell you that he like crept in through a trap door and that he left his bath running so that the pipes would wheeze and bubble and boil so that he couldn't be heard sneaking around. Like, I don't know if that is even possible to guess in that specificity. No, no. It's the kind of thing that I would like another novel to have a character have a scene in a bath in the other house and then go like, oh God, you know, the pipes are squeaky yeah. at this time well, of year. What with the temperature? All you'd need is a scene where a character goes, oh, I'll fix those pipes for you. They're, they're sure rusty and old. Yeah. Like, like that's all you'd need. There, there are Some so fits, many maybe. options for how you could have foreshadowed that thing. And in the broader sense of the crime, how was this possible Yes, it helps explain it. Yes, it is a a thing that someone could have inferred, but I don't think it makes it enjoyable to solve. No, I would I would agree. Is is the big challenge. The murder mystery game, there are fun moments where you have to make inferences, but at the same time, I think one of the things with the best mysteries is that they give you as much as possible and the challenge is deciphering where that little inference is going to come. I'm I'm complaining a bit about, you know, all these details that I couldn't have worked out, but these are also details that come from the confession letter, not from our detective. Yeah. I will be completely mm. honest with you. I, I barely remember. What did Lord Peter Whimsy actually work out? He worked out that the bodies had been switched and that Frank was a, he was, he was a evil man, but like a lot of it is kind of obfuscated through, double entendre and and kind of the rising action of, of the scenes that he's like half explaining his way through. I'll be entirely honest. I think that's about it. Okay. And that's also kind of the problem. <laughs> that's bizarre. Right? Is that the, as, as we were saying at the beginning, we don't get much closure for our characters in the aftermath of them reading the letter. Mm. But if we had gotten closure, Dorothy L. Sayers would probably either have to acknowledge or go back and tweak the fact that most of what was in the letter, they hadn't gotten to. And it would have kind of made Whimsy fall a bit more flat as a detective because all he really did was make the same obvious observation that yeah. we did. It's kind of an interesting trick that she pulls where, because we, we don't have all those little details, but Peter does decide not to take a lethal injection from from freak and so freak says aha you beat me on this on this point and good good for you but he doesn't solve most of what's actually going on with the murder it's just because he we kind of have the confession letter and the criminal says you've defeated me in this game of chess it it feels like he's kind of done more than he has it is it is in the truest sense a whodunit mm. but it is a whodunit, which really should have been a howdunit. I've been reading a lot of comparisons between him and, and some certain other detectives. People people seem to really enjoy how silly he is and how vulnerable he can be. You know, he has the funny, quirky, psychic bunter. Like, yeah. that whimsy is, I think, what people are drawn to mm-hmm. more than his ability to completely deconstruct crime scenes. Well, But I, I think the other big detail to me is that he's willing to put himself on the line to get justice. Sure. Like, he could be all of those other qualities and not care, but he cares. Yeah, he's very much not an armchair detective. Um, his his mother keeps appearing to kind of cheer him on or check in on his health and that sort of thing. <laughs> like, he is attached to the people around him. Even Inspector Sugg, he kind of throws him a bone by... Um, involving him in the in the arrest of Frake. Yeah. And not to go back on last week's point, but he would rather think of murder mystery like a football match more than, you know, the the dirtiness of, of crime and murder, which I think is 
it's cool. It's cool. I think with the appropriate grain of salt, this book can be a great time. And I personally found this like a really suitable novel for the mood that I was in when we got to this book. Mm. But it's also not going to be for everyone looking for a murder mystery, I don't think. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that take. I think I'm I am definitely interested to give give a go the other novels in the series um, and maybe have a deeper dive into some more competent outings, see how Peter Whimsy changes. But I think that in the meantime, it might be a good idea to check in on a character who is created as perhaps a parody of, of Lord Peter Whimsy, uh, if you'll indulge me. <laughs> I hope you're ready for this. <laughs> Um, So next week on the show, we are going to be covering Traitor's Purse by Marjorie Allium. It was published in 1941 and is the 11th novel in the Albert Campion series in which he is a blank face. He's followed by his criminal butler. He's entirely unwhimsical as far as I can tell. And he has amnesia, which is fantastic. So (laughs) yeah, we're going to be covering Traitor's Purse up till chapter seven next week. Look forward to it. It's going to be a, a wild ride, I'm sure. I I just want to let you know, Herds, mm. I only know the slightest bit about Campion from, from context, and I I love this pick. It's great. What a great choice to go on after a Peter Wimsey novel. Yeah, I mean, look, it is the only, uh, Marjorie Allium is the only queen of crime that we have not covered, so in a sense, it seems obvious, but the more I read into uh, Campion and his reputation, I really wanted to cover, uh, I think it's the Tiger in the Smoke, but apparently there is no detection in that novel. I suppose, Herds, we should uh, we should bid farewell and we can reconvene next week with Traitor's Purse by Marjorie Allingham, chapters one to seven. So ready. It's going to be a great time. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SCR 107.3. Catch you with Marjorie Allingham next week. See you then.